Good morning, River Oaks. My name is Art Cash, and I'm a discipleship pastor here at our church. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We'll be continuing in our journey preaching and teaching through the book of Esther. This morning we'll be in chapter 8. So one of the things I love about the Bible, I love about Christian community, is how it can give you entirely new words and categories that help us make sense of life. So if you were here for Ecclesiastes, you'll remember the word hevel. Okay, hevel, it it covers this mystery of living life in a world that's broken by sin and filled with futility. Southern and I went uh, to a concert this week, drove three hours for this outdoor concert. We got through three songs a thunderstorm breaks out. Concert's canceled. I have a category for that, hevel. Okay, (laughs) this was futility. Sitting down with a a good friend last week, uh, just new categories, able to have entire conversations and know exactly what we're talking about. He sits down and says, man, I got to stop being a Haman and making idols out of all this hevel. I'm like, I know exactly what you mean. So that's, that's why I love Scripture, I love Christian community, these, these new words that we get so we can communicate well with each other, and I've got a new one for you this morning, okay? It's, it's eucatastrophe. Yeah, no, I know it's a lot of syllables, so let's, I need you to practice with me. You put a U and then catastrophe. U, catastrophe. Yes, you got it. Here's what this word means. It's from Tolkien. He, he combines good with a sudden turn. This, this is a eucatastrophe. It's, it's goodness with a turn. He, he describes it as a massive turn in a, in a seemingly impossible situation, an unforeseen victory. He says this is what we long for in literature and in life, the sudden happy turn in a story that just pierces you, just, just makes you tear up. This is what we long for. Here it is in the book of, of Esther, the single best eucatastrophe in the Bible apart from the resurrection of Christ. The deliverance of God's people from impending doom to joyous victory. And for those of us in Christ, our story, our, our deliverance, it's not just similar to Esther, it's better. It's, it's better because when Jesus is the one who delivers us, our deliverance is sure. And that's, that's our main point this morning. Because it's Jesus who delivers you, your deliverance is sure. We'll see the passage break out naturally with perspectives of Esther and and Mordecai. With Esther, she offers this passionate plea before King Xerxes in verses 1 through 8. And then with Mordecai, who writes up and sends out this precise edict of deliverance for God's people in the second half of the passage. So you'll recall the end of chapter 7, that we've got the, the end of the seed of the serpent the end of that foe, the end of the enemy of God's people, Haman, impaled on the very gallows that had been made to execute Mordecai. Queen Esther's plan to reveal Haman, it had worked. Haman's sin was found out and his fall was epic. So now we pick up in chapter eight with a wrap up of the fall of Haman. I want you to see the precise reversal that takes place starting with Mordecai receiving his enemy's house, the same ring, the same position, the same authority that Haman had previously held. So let's look at the first eight verses here of chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. 
And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ashawarah said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Father, we ask that you would help us to to see your word clearly. Father, specifically help us see you for for who you are, to see Esther pointing us to your your son, the the forever intercessor, for for Mordecai pointing us to your son, the forever righteous deliverer. Help us see it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in verses 1 and 2, we see not only this reversal where Mordecai is given everything that his enemy Haman had, but we find out why. But why did that happen? Look at the end of verse 1. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. The only reason that Mordecai can be in the presence of the king is because of who he is to Esther. And here Queen Esther chooses to personally identify with Mordecai before the king. The grand reversal is is happening. He gets everything that belonged to his enemy. Before we can celebrate any of that, the narrator reminds us that there's a huge problem. Esther and Mordecai are safe. The threat is far from over. Haman's wicked decree, it's still out there. Remember that? That edict that he sent that would lead to the death and destruction of God's people. There's a day coming when every Jew, young and old, children, women, they will all be destroyed, killed, and annihilated because of Haman's edict from 3.13. So so what can Esther do? How how can she stop this? When verse 3, she she gathers her confidence and, and one more time, one more time she goes before the king. And this had to be a little bit after verses one and two because verse four tells us that the king holds out the golden scepter to Esther. This means that for the second time, she's going into the king's presence uninvited at risk of her own life for the sake of her people. So while Haman fell before Esther to plead for himself, Esther falls before the king to plead for others. We're we're getting to see another side of Esther here. This is not the patient, shrewd, 
calculating queen that we saw earlier who so deftly exposed Haman. This is a distraught queen. This is a queen weeping, desperately pleading and interceding for her kindred. So once the king extends that scepter, she knows she's not going to die. So she stands and pleads her case. Look again at at five and, and six. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the king, if, if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther's emotions are high. But she does something remarkable here. See see what she does in in this passage where she just weaves together who she is to the king with who her people are to her. It's, It's brilliant. How can I bear the calamity coming to my people? How can I bear the destruction of my kindred? She knows this king so well. She knows he doesn't care about God's people. He doesn't care about the immorality of genocide. What he cares about is this queen and her happiness because if he keeps his queen happy, that's another way of keeping himself happy. So Esther, she leverages, wisely leverages this king's self-interest with her passionate plea. She begs the king, please revoke this. My people are going to die. Please overturn this law that Haman came up with. All of Esther's cards, that they're on the table. She stands pleading before a fickle and a dangerous king. So the question that we've had for Esther the entire time is, who is she? What will she turn out to be? Esther is not a creature of the kingdom. She is a queen. She is in full union with her people. She's an intercessor. So you know what, what makes a, a good story? Is, is character development. Seeing somebody go from, from A to, to Z, seeing them be developed. And we see that with, with Esther. We see her going from oblivious, not knowing why Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes, to this kind of self-concerned place of, if I perish, I, I perish. Determined with that statement. Courageous, going uninvited to the king, not once but twice, and then shrewd with the banquets, with the eliciting the promises from the king, compassionate, weeping and pleading, interceding for my kindred, my people. Esther has grown. As we look at her, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you take a look at yourself how he has matured you over time. We, we don't have the, the book of art or the book of Bob to kind of turn back into the book of our, our deeds and go, oh yeah, I, I don't struggle with this sin as, as much as I used to. I've grown in my concern for others. Courage and sharing the gospel, check. So ask the Holy Spirit to, to help you be encouraged. If you're in Christ, you are not who you were. He is growing you. It's described as as a walk for a reason. 
as, as fruit. Those things are slow. They take time. I've never been able to stare at an apple and, and tell that it's growing. <laughs> Here we are, though. It, it, it makes sense to, to look back and see not only is the Holy Spirit uprooting seeds and weeds of sin in your life, he's also growing his fruit in you as his people. So how does, how does the king respond to Esther's passionate plea? I mean, it's basically with the royal, eh, whatever. I mean, that's, that's what we're getting here in, in 7 and, and 8. Look with me. Then King Ashawaris said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, you can kind of read between the lines here, behold, I've already given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king is, is basically saying, hey, I've, I've already handled your Haman problem, and you want more? His words are a bit like a, a verbal shrug. Eh, write, write whatever you want in my name. Seal it with my ring. And King Xerxes, he's, he's like the movie dad trope from the 80s. He's somewhat disinterested, snoozing on the recliner, occasionally is roused to shout language as you run by yelling. But most of the time, can't be bothered to make the call. So he just says, hey, don't, ask your mom, I don't know. And that's kind of what we have here. He's basically saying, sure, Esther, Mordecai, write whatever you want. It'd be laughable except he's the most powerful man in the world. It'd be ridiculous, except any law or decree written in his name and sealed with his ring cannot be undone. You can tell a lot about this king that he would casually say, write whatever you want in my name, knowing that whatever is written in his name cannot be revoked. The king's lack of interest in what's done in his name is what got them into this mess to begin with, all the way back in chapter 3. So there's, there's a lot of good pointers to Christ in this chapter, specifically Esther and Mordecai. But how does, how does King Ashawaris teach us about the character of God? Well, by way of contrast on this Father's Day, I want you to consider this king. He's the worst kind of king. He's both passive and powerful. He's both indifferent and dangerous. Many of you grew up with loving fathers who were interested in you, who pointed you to Jesus the best that they could. Praise the Lord for that. Our desire here is to raise up dads that through both their strengths and their weaknesses, through both their successes and their failures, point their families to Jesus. That more often than not, even when we fail, we're able to say, I need Jesus just as much as you do. We're in this together. That that's our desire here. But some of us grew up passive, disinterested, or worse, kind of dads. To you, to myself, I say, thank the Lord that our God does not father us the way that we were fathered. For any of you in here have done your best to try to father, you know. Thank God that he fathers us perfectly better than the way we father. 
Our father isn't snoozing on his throne. He's not muttering guilt trips under his breath. I gave you Eden. How did that go? Don't make me talk about the golden calf situation. You can't be trusted. Don't bother me. No. No, our father knows that we can't be trusted. And he pursues us anyway. He loves us anyway. According to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, our Father planned to not just barely tolerate you. Our Father planned to not just take a mild interest in you, but to choose you, to love you, to adopt you. Our Father loves you so much he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Thank God for his word who who points us to a perfect father. His perfect father sends his son who like Esther personally and openly unites himself to a people who cannot save themselves. In the greatest reversal of all time, those united to Jesus by faith, we get credit for his obedience while he takes the punishment for our rebellion. So while Esther's passionate plea, it's inspiring, her intercession is courageous, she's meant to point us to the perfect intercessor, the the one that according to Romans 8.34 is at the right hand interceding for you now at this moment. Why do we need that though? If Jesus' life and death accomplished the great reversal, we're reconciled to God the Father. Why do we need Jesus to be interceding for us right now? It's simple. Because we keep sinning. We keep sinning. So we usually feel pretty confident about what it is that Jesus has done for us in the past. We, justification, got it. All right, he lived, he died on the cross, bore the weight for, for my sin, he's, he's resurrected, got it. But, w- but we think little about what he's currently doing for us. Jesus is not sitting back in, in heaven waiting to see how we do with this Christian life thing. He, he, he's not sitting back and going, I did my part. We'll just, we'll see how bad they mess us up. That's not our intercessor. That's not Jesus. No, he is passionately pleading his case, his righteousness before the Father. His ongoing intercession means that he's with us right now in our sin and the destruction it causes. By the Holy Spirit, he's with you right now in the calamity of your suffering. He openly identifies with you. You are in union with him right now. So I have no idea what what it might look like the Father and the Son and the Spirit, for them to mutually celebrate their work on our behalf. But because of Romans 8, I can imagine it. I want you to imagine it with me. Because if, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Picture, picture God, the perfect Father, pointing at you and asking, who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? I chose you. I justified you. And Jesus then, at at the Father's right hand, pointing at you and saying, I died for you. More than that, I was raised for you. You you belong to us. 
man, I, I love to picture that ongoing conversation of Romans 8, 34. That Jesus Christ intercedes for us right now at the right hand of God. As we see, and we'll continue to see, Jesus' ongoing intercession for his people, it, it matters. We need it. We need it because every other type of deliverance is temporary. Esther's intercession, Mordecai's edict of, of deliverance, it's awesome, but it's temporary. It's only three or 400 years, and, and the Jewish people are under another empire, under their thumb, oppressed, looking for a deliverer. But since it's Jesus who delivers us, our deliverance is sure. If there's a verse, I want you to, to, to circle and underline and maybe highlight with red and purple, whatever it takes for it to get your attention. I want it to be Hebrews 7, 25. Since Jesus lives to intercede for us, he is able to save to the uttermost, not mostly, not halfway, not two-thirds, completely, utterly save those who draw near to God through him. Your intercessor and your deliverer are sure. So look at, at the next section here, verses 9 through 14, at the precise deliverance. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ashawaris and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ashawaris, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies." So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and a decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So as we look at this, this section, by now we're, we're familiar with this, the chiasm or chiastic form of this book where X marks a spot in the middle and out from that there's perfect symmetry and balance. So it's, it's not surprising that Mordecai writes this edict that precisely counters Haman's from chapter 3. Even though it's not surprising, it's still brilliant storytelling. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that Mordecai uses the same scribes to write his edict, sealed with the same ring, sent to the same provinces by the same couriers, the only difference, faster horses. And that's, that's an extra note there because time is of the essence in getting this message out to a kingdom that spans three continents. So what about the content? How similar was the content? There, there are striking similarities, but there are drastic differences. Verses 11 and 12, we see that 
that Mordecai's decree is righteous. It allows for self-defense while Haman's decree called for the people of God to be attacked. That's, there's a difference. But the skeptic might say, how, how, can, how can this edict be, be righteous? I mean, it allows the Jews to, to, to gather and destroy, kill and annihilate any that might attack them, children and women included. So this is where the precision of this reversal is so important. That language, kill, annihilate, destroy, women and children, it's an exact reflection of Haman's edict. The difference is Mordecai's is restrained to self-defense. The people of God, they can't just attack whenever they want. According to verse 12, they can defend themselves on the exact day on which the Jews' enemies can attack them. It just so happens. God's subtle sovereignty here. What we're seeing with this edict is an example of proportionate justice. It perfectly measures the offense. But then we get to the end of verse 13. Look, look at the end of verse 13 for just a second. To be ready on that day to take vengeance. Vengeance on their enemies. Well, that's, that's kind of troubling. Vengeance is not a counter to anything that was in the first edict. So, so what do we do when we come across something in Scripture that doesn't sound Christian? What do we do with that? Aren't we supposed to bless those who persecute us, pray for those that are our enemies? Well, first we have to, we have to ask if what we're reading is something that's being commanded of us or described to us. This is being described to us. The Bible is not safe, nor is it sanitized. The Bible does not spare the truth for our comfort or modern sensibilities. Second, we've got to ask where this passage is located in redemptive history. At this time, the Jews were God's chosen people. They were divided, they were dispersed, but they were still under the Mosaic Covenant, ruled by divine law. An eye for an eye justice is exactly what's to be expected here. And more importantly, God's promises are being fulfilled with this edict. God promised Abraham he would bless those who bless him and he would curse those who cursed him. Genesis 12, verse 3. So in a somewhat reversal, surprising way, even with the deck stacked completely against him and his people, we see God keep his promise to Abraham. Even more than that, it just so happens that God is preserving the people through whom the promised offspring of Eve will come. The promised king from the line of David, the ultimate serpent crusher, the king who will ultimately deliver his people. So while many of us will never live as an oppressed people under constant threats of death and annihilation, we can still be instructed from this passage. If we are honest with ourselves, there's times where our hearts cozy right up to the old covenant when it comes to an eye for an eye, when it comes to vengeance. That's a heavy word, but let me ask you, where does your heart go when you are wronged by someone? Where do your thoughts go when someone attacks your character? 
What does it look like when you are trying to defend yourself from that wrong? You want to vindicate yourself. This is another way of denying that Jesus is actually your deliverer when you attempt to deliver yourself. To want the truth to come out of it is a good inclination, but when our hearts want an eye for an eye, for the other person to suffer like we've suffered, we're moving toward vengeance. We know it's wrong. But quite frankly, an eye for an eye is just easier than turning the other cheek. So what do we do? What do you do when, when the words that another have said keep you up at night? When, when you're replaying a particular scenario over and over in your head and painting that person more and more as the villain and yourself as more and more the hero, what do we do with the vengeance that lurks in our hearts? Thank God for the fact that he gives us his Holy Spirit in his word. The Spirit is the one who uproots your bitterness. He's the one who grows patience and kindness in us. He's the one who convicts us and shines the light on our own sin and grows us in humility. If you've ever been in a conflict and the thought occurred to you, I've contributed to this. I was a part of this. I had sin in this. Praise the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit showing you that. Our natural disposition, again, is to make ourselves the victim or the hero and the other person the villain. So if you're seeing a situation where there's conflict and you are seeing you were part of it, the Holy Spirit is showing you that. I mean, who, who in here in their own power could ever repay evil with honor or persecution with blessing and do it from the heart. I want to talk to you. I want to know how you could do that. We must have the Holy Spirit. We're desperate for the Holy Spirit. Thank God for his word that he shows us that we're under a new covenant that's better than the old one with a perfect mediator named Jesus we find out in God's word that he's not only our defender, but he's our avenger. This is how it's possible to not avenge yourself, that we rest in the truth of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is only through the word, by the spirit, that any of us, are not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. So what we see with, with Mordecai's edict is a precise and powerful deliverance of God's people. This powerful and miraculous eucatastrophe in the book of Esther, it's given courage to so many over the last 2,400 years. It's given hope in the darkest of times and places. In concentration camps during World War II, it was punishable by death if a Jew was found in possession of the book of Esther. So powerful is the story of deliverance in this book. But their deliverance poses a huge problem. God's subtle sovereignty and his powerful deliverance presents us with a huge problem. What about the six million Jews who went to the gas chambers and the gallows waiting and hoping for an Esther-like deliverance that never came? 
where was their deliverance? Where was their deliverer? Perhaps you've wondered the same thing. Where is your deliverance from that enemy, cancer? Where is your deliverance from years of a decaying marriage? Where is the deliverance from addiction? Where is your deliverance from loneliness? Where's your deliverer? Where is he? Are there times when God will miraculously deliver his people out of danger? Of course. We just read about a bunch of them in Acts. After Paul thought he was going to die in Asia, he tells the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 1.10 that he, Jesus, delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And we also know that the reality for every Paul, lower down in a basket, every Peter, rescued by an angel. There's a Stephen who's killed by a mob. There's a John the Baptist beheaded. Is God any less in control with, with Stephen's death? Is he any less good? Is he any less of a deliverer? By no means. So then what kind of deliverer is this Jesus? What does he deliver us from? Who is he? Where is he? So instead of killing, destroying, and annihilating his enemies, this Jesus is delivered over to his enemies to be mocked, flogged, and crucified for us. Luke 24, 7, he is delivered for our sake. Who is this deliverer? He delivers us from the wrath of God to come. Jesus has delivered you from the domain of darkness to his kingdom. Jesus has killed our hostility toward God and reconciled us to him. Jesus delivers us by destroying the works of the devil. The last enemy Jesus will destroy is death. And one day when the end comes, Jesus Christ will deliver the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule, every power, and every authority. So what kind of deliverer is this Jesus? Oh, he, he's the one that we can say with Paul, he's delivered us from deadly peril. He will deliver us. On him, we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Because Jesus delivers us, our deliverance is sure. So as Mordecai's deliverance is set in motion, we get to witness the precision of the reversal for, for him and his people. Look with me at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Mordecai, the righteous Jew, he's been transfigured. Chapter four, he's in sackcloth, ashes, loud and bitter crying. To hear royal robes, a golden crown and great rejoicing. Do you remember how the city of Susa responded when Haman's edict went out? The entire city was thrown into confusion. But verse 15, 
tells us that the good news of the deliverance of God's people, as that spread, Susa shouted and rejoiced. Chapter 4, the people of God reacted to Haman's decree with mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Now they trade all of that mourning for light, gladness, joy, and honor. This is how you would expect them to respond to such a you catastrophe. So brothers and sisters, I say this not to condemn you, but to encourage you. How much more should our lives be marked with light, gladness, joy, and honor for how much greater is our deliverer, how much more sure, more permanent, and more forever our deliverance? We are a distracted and forgetful people. You'd be all pumped up about our deliverance, the joy I should have. And I grab my phone and, oh, look what Elon Musk said on Twitter. And I completely forget. So then what are the ways that we could set aside times of remembrance for how God has delivered you, continues to deliver you, and will finally deliver you? Put it on your calendar as a recurring event, an annual recurring event when Jesus does something miraculous in your life. When you're reminded of the grace and the mercy that you've been extended by him, put it on the calendar. Have it remind you. We need ways to remember. Esther and Mordecai's deliverance, it was so remarkable. It led to such joy among the people they declared a feast and a holiday, verse 17. To this day, they celebrate Purim to mark and remember this deliverance. We can learn from that. If you're in Christ, communion is to be celebrated. The Lord's Supper is a time to rejoice. It's possible for something to be both serious and joyful. It's a time for gladness, remembering what Christ has done, making us his people, delivering us to himself through the new covenant sealed in his blood. Christians, we we live in a dark time. And it's marked by dramatic confusion, much like Susa. So as the people of God, how should we live? Is our strategy merely to complain about the ground that Satan has taken, to just shake our head and just be frustrated at everything that's happening? Or is our strategy to rejoice in the deliverance that Jesus has accomplished? Brothers and sisters, our war against Satan can be fought with joy. When God's people are marked by joy and celebration at the goodness of God, something incredible happens. Look again at the end of verse 17. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know what's happening here? Here are Persian pagans joining God's covenant people. The war against Satan is won by making disciples. Every single time you open the Bible with your family, that is an arrow to the heart of the kingdom of darkness. Every time a disciple is made, the kingdom of darkness is plundered. As the people of God, we are to pillage and ransack the evil one's domain with the good news of Jesus' deliverance. And this happens so effectively through the joyful celebratory lives of those who've been delivered. You have been delivered. 
Christian joy inevitably draws people out of darkness into light. Christian joy draws people out of confusion into truth, out of shame into honor. Christian joy is a light for those who are miserable, for them to be drawn into eternal delight. Our joy is sure because it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength and our joy is never ending because it's Jesus who delivers us. On him, we set our hope again and again and again because his deliverance is sure. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for how Esther points us to you, to your son, to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as your people. Jesus, thank you for not only identifying with us, but uniting yourself to us. We could not save ourselves. You had to save us. So we praise your name for what you've done. We we thank you for your ongoing intercession for us because we know that we continue to sin and we need your righteousness spoken over and over and over. Remind us of what you've done for us. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, your love, and your saving work done through your Son. Spirit, please seal it in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.